Hey, everybody. We are back, and we're going to touch on a bunch of different subjects of different stuff that's going on. Some of it's going to be Longhorn relevant. Some had some recruiting victories for the Longhorns. We are going to talk a little bit about 2021 potential Longhorn draft picks, which is way too early, completely stupid and irresponsible, but we almost feel like it's, you, you have to engage in that conjecture game. You have to be the Mel Kuyper that's making NFL draft lists <laughs> out to 2022 where you've got guys who are going to end up being undrafted free agents as his number one pick, uh, as has happened a few years ago with Adam Ulatoski, if you guys remember that offensive tackle for Texas, a good player for Texas, a very consistent player, but probably not going to be the number one uh, offensive tackle in the NFL draft. But anyway, that's, that's something we're going to talk about. We're also going to talk a little bit about the plans recently floated by MGM, the MGM uh, group in Las Vegas, to create bubbles for both the NBA and the NHL. They want to uh, basically create a quarantine block for athletes and their families. They're going to have a lot of medical, a lot of different protocols to keep people isolated and separated, and they want to play out the NBA season and playoffs. Same with the NHL. Uh, we'll talk about whether that's a good idea or feasible. And then we definitely are going to talk about the last dance. Uh, when we last we left our hero, and Michael Jordan is our hero, and the Bulls of the 90s, uh, they had just started to ramp up. Young Michael Jordan is growing up. And uh, the series since then has segued into the Pistons, overcoming the bad boys, the Jordan uh, and Bulls dynasty, which is starting to flourish and grow. And then, of course, all the criticism and off-court off stuff that Jordan had to deal with. So we'll touch on all that stuff. Kevin, how's it going? How are things? Things are good, man. Uh, actually back at the studio now. This is Tuesday that we're doing this, so it's good to be back here. And uh, as we've talked about, got some people planting their flags. I think now is the best time ever to stay nimble on both sides. So uh, hopefully we can get this thing back sooner rather than later. I think we're at that stage now where you still got to obviously be really careful, but uh, you talked about it early on, building herd immunity, and that is something that, you know, we, we just don't know how much of that we, we already have and we need to build. And you're referencing Gerard Hurd. Yes, Gerard Hurd, uh, who, who, let's think about the game he had. Didn't he have more total yards in a game than Vince? Yeah, he had over 500 yards against Cal. That is crazy. And they lost that game. That was golf. And lost that game, yeah. Lost the game to Jared Goff. That's uh, yeah. Texas uh, couldn't handle Cal. <laughs> we had two losses to Cal, right? I know two losses to Maryland. You know, it's not a shock that whenever you think about the draft picks and and where Texas has been, and we will talk about that. Let's get into that right now. Next year, if you're going to forecast, you know, I laugh. I love the mocks. I love mocks all throughout the year. But the ones that have the least credibility, even for the people that are doing them that are credible, are the ones that are a year out in advance. Because essentially, it turns into a what's left from the college all-star team. And you can take, take it even a step further with certain positions. So I think Walker Little is not that good of a left tackle. I know he was a big recruit. I wanted Texas to get him. This is not a, oh, I can't believe Stanford got him. I'd tell my own kid to go to Stanford over Texas. It's the fact that I've seen him. And go back to the Notre Dame game a couple years ago, because last year he tore his ACL and he played one game. He got abused by multiple defensive ends. Now, Notre Dame had a good defense, but it was so bad that there's no way you can talk about him being an All-American 
and there's no way that you can say that you think he's going to be a first-round draft pick. And I've seen his name in there. I saw Colin Johnson's name a year ago and laughed at that because Colin Johnson was never a first-round pick. So the ones that are a year out in advance, which is kind of like pretty much what we're doing right here, those you can only take so far. Have more fun with them than anything. Yeah, you know, all that said, all the caveats accepted, I do actually think Sam Cosme for Texas has a good potential to be a first-round draft pick, and uh, I think there's concrete reasons for it, number one of which is his play on the field. If you watch him play, he's a, a very sound pass protector. He's a good run blocker. He's aggressive. He's physical. He's athletic, and he still hasn't fully tapped into all of his physical and athletic potential. He's still getting better as a player, so the sooner he could put another year of film with all of his skills together, whenever that happens, if it's in the fall, if it's in the spring, whatever, uh, I think he has a good chance of being a first-round draft pick. And uh, that's not just because of Mel Kuyper saying so. It's just that's sort of my opinion. Yeah, I think Cosme is number one, and he's got to get better. He's got to be more consistent. But because Walker Little is one of the tackles that I keep seeing in, on these lists, uh, he's better than Walker Little. Now, is he is he going to be the best tackle? Is it going to be a deep class? We're going to have to kind of wait and see. But he's got a legit shot if he has a big-time year and improves to do that. Caden Stearns, and I know he's talking to the media on one of these Zoom deals, which are so weird, seeing, like, all the different people on these Zoom things with John Bianco and Thomas Stepp and Caden Stearns is talking to him. But he says he's 100% healthy, and if he is, and if this Chris Ash defense – can help him out, then I, he's a guy who could be a first-round pick. He could. I So I actually think there's a Longhorn that might be more likely than Stearns, okay. if I'm just playing the percentages, and, and other than Cosme. And I think that would be Osai. Osai. We'll talk about him in a second. Yeah. But Stearns, you know, for me, it's just about putting him in a real defense, a real scheme that frees him up and allows him to do what he does best, which is range on the back end show his multiplicity, show his ability to play the ball, track the ball, and, and make plays on the ball. Because I wrote this in my last Thinking Texas Football preview, and I think it's something that bears watching, which is the traditional Ronnie Lott safety, that archetype that we all love and grew up with, the hard hitter, don't, oh, you don't dare go over the middle of the field, right? That because of the changes in the rules of the game, because of the spread of offenses, that's really becoming an archaic archetype for safety play. The safety play that you want is the guy who doesn't put people on the ground. It's the guy who plays the ball in the air. And that's Caden Stearns. And I think that's where football is moving. His issue has been, one, the structure of the defense he played in. That can be addressed by Chris Ash. Two, it's just been simply health. You know, he just has been too hurt, too banged up, and, and – you know, the, the real issue with injuries is not so much that it makes you miss games, which is obviously it does. It's that it re retards your development in the offseason because you're trying to recover. You're coming off a of surgery. So you're not going to progress and grow. You're not going to get physically stronger. You're not going to be able to work on your speed. You're not going to be able to work full time and, and you know, in practice and, and develop your skill set and, and sort of sharpen that edge. So that's what Caden Stearns needs. He needs a stable defense and he needs an injury free season. I think he'll play himself into a good draft position. I don't know if it'll be the first round, but I think increasingly he has some of the attributes that the NFL covets, and uh, that's why I like his projection. Now, Joe Osai, 
I want to hear what are your thoughts on on Joe. I think he has, uh, I think he has a huge potential to increase his stock with some stability role. I think he's a multi-tool. I think he's got some Kyle Van Noy sort of aspects where you can, he can play off the ball. He can rush. He can blitz. He can cover. Uh, God knows he can cover since we've had him standing over the slot <laughs> about a quarter of his snaps last year. Uh, so, yeah, I, what are your thoughts on Joe Osai? Do you think he's a guy that can play himself into first or second round contention? Uh, I like Asai, and like you said, it's more about the role. I think maybe the worst thing he did was covering Whittington on that wheel route so well in the spring game, Uh, and then all of a sudden Orlando's got him all over the place, and he could do that, but there's no doubt his strength, and especially I think in in the right defense, will be coming off the edge and being able to apply pressure, and I, I think he's incredibly quick. He's really athletic, a lot more athletic than I thought he was, and he was a guy who who I, yeah I guess Charles Charles Minihue would have been talking about him whenever he was interning for us and that was kind of his next guy he's like watch out for Asai and they just didn't use him well and it w- went kind of the, the whole sum of the parts as we talked about didn't make a lot of the individual parts look good and I think he's at the top of the list and we saw that in the bowl game whenever they simplified and allowed him to do kind of what he does so yeah I think all three of those guys could possibly be first rounders one thing I'd forgot Penny Sewell is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime pro- or once-in-every-five-ten-years type tackle who I've seen some people have as the number one overall pick, including Matt Miller from uh, Bleacher Report. And, hmm. I, yeah, and so that that would be a guy, I guess, replace Walker Little. But Cosme could still be in that group, and we know that that's such an important position. Four guys could go if, they, if there's a need and if they're good enough. Yeah, the other thing I'd mention about Osai is – he is going to check all the interview boxes and all the toughness boxes that NFL GMs and scouts covet. And that's because he's a smart guy. He's highly motivated and he's a dog. Joe Osai is a dog and he wants to get out there and, and kick ass and take names. This isn't about glory. It's not about all the fame or the adulation. It's about him going out and kicking ass and taking names. And the fact is he played with a pretty significant injury through most of last year and his, his shoulder, they had to stabilize it with a sling. He didn't have full range of motion. He couldn't even really take on blocks properly sometimes. And he still went out there and you saw what a little bit of rest did for that shoulder in that Utah game where he was utterly dominant. More importantly, they actually played him correctly, which is, Hey, they realized this six foot four, 250 pound guy with elite quickness is good at rushing off the edge. Who, who knew, who knew that was a skill trait that a guy like that could possess. But I think he's going to check a lot of boxes. I think he's a guy that NFL teams can kind of fall in love with just because of his attitude, his intelligence, and the fact that he's a dog. And that's what NFL teams are looking for. Uh, finally, and it's probably not coincidence. We left this guy for last. He is a guy that will be drafted. He's a guy that's got an amazing amount of college production. He's a winner. He's a guy who's smart. He makes big plays. He's not scared of the moment. And that's Sam Ellinger. And the fact is, I don't think we have any reasonable means of projecting where he's going to go or how he'll be perceived in the NFL or what his skill growth could still be as a pure passer. And we can only look to Joe Burrow. You know, we, we've got the Trevor Lawrences who've been anointed as a first-round draft pick since their freshman year of college. 
And then you've got guys like Joe Burrow, who demonstrate a lot of toughness and, and, and strength and, and leadership in their junior season for LSU, right? But no one had him projected as anything but a fifth, sixth rounder, undrafted free agent. And of course, he's 1-1 after the season gets played out. Could you see something comparable happen to Sam Ellinger? You know, if he's sitting in New York vying for the Heisman? Or is he going to be viewed as a Dak Prescott project, fourth rounder? Uh, there's no result in the NFL draft that would surprise me with Sam Ellinger. We know he will be drafted, or at least I know he will be drafted. I'm not sure how you feel. And ultimately, I, I'm not sure how to, to handicap his draft chances. What do you think? Uh, I Well, first off, I, I, I don't think it's comparable because I don't think he's going to be 1-1. And he could be in New York for sure. That that he's been he's been that productive. I just don't see Yursich having the Joe Brady effect because I don't think it'll be that uh, that extreme in terms mm-hmm. of what they're going going to. They also don't have the receivers. I don't think they have the offensive line. There's a lot of parts that that Joe had that last year. I also think Joe Burrow is just a better overall thrower and passer. So you think Texas lacks the offensive line, the receivers, and the offense. But other than that, do you agree that he has a perfect situation? Yeah, exactly. No, I'm not saying that they don't. I'm not saying they don't lack it. They don't have what LSU had to have that type of drastic turn from your junior year to senior year. And Sam, if you look at his sophomore and junior year, and even last year with some of the throws, Sam did get better and was sacked more than any other quarterback in the Big Twelve. So there were a lot of other things that went into play. I kind of think that his that sometimes people are hypercritical of how he performed his junior year. Could he be in New York? Absolutely. Could it be a late first round, second round pick? Sure. Could he be a fifth round pick? Sure. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to look at him because it's not like Tebow. And so if you really watch Tebow, you knew this guy was going to have to be an H-back at the next level. And you knew it by about his sophomore year. Sam continues to improve, and he can throw the football. The question is, because I even looked at a thing today where there were five people talking about it, five analysts talking about it, about Sam, because Gil Brandt came out with his top top 50 and the only two senior quarterbacks. forgot who the other one was. I think the kid out of Northwestern. And then Sam was on there. And so there were people talking about it, and it was pretty split. Like, I think people are split. I, I do think it's comparable in terms of Sam can make up some serious ground, not as much as Joe Burrow from undrafted to 1-1, but some serious ground this senior year if he does fit in this Yersich offense and if the receivers help him out. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, and just to be clear, I'm not suggesting Sam is going to be 1-1. No, I, we, we got is, that on tape. I'm going to edit that later. <laughs> edit that down. Uh, make my voice sound much even higher pitched and reedier and, and plaintive. <laughs> and, uh, it, I just think he's a 1-1. He's 1-1. One, one. Book it poster every day before I do my workout book it uh yeah I just think there's a lot of range in his outcome and arguably the most range of any longhorn that's that's going to be draft eligible or likely draft pick I will run very quickly through some other possibilities because there are guys that can come out of nowhere who could solidify uh draft status or even be a valuable undrafted free agent if you're looking at potential longhorn seniors I think the most likely candidates would be Derek Kerstetter Taquan Graham. Yeah. Uh, Jacoby Jones. I know this, that sounds crazy. This it is does. a guy who barely played last year. Uh, if you know anything about his skill set, if you know anything about some of the intelligence around this player, 
Uh, he is a good pass rusher. And he may be put in some situations. If obviously, he needs to play himself into it, and he needs to use this extended offseason correctly to ask power, agility, etc. But he is the JUCO recruit who came in, kind of sat around a year, got acclimated, and there is some small potential for him to come on the scene because he has some of the attributes as a pure pass rusher that I think Chris Ash values. I'm not saying this is even likely, but don't discount it as a possibility. Uh, those are the really the seniors that I think could possibly throw their, their hats in, in the ring. Um, Brennan Eagles, draft-eligible junior, certainly has the physical measurables and the specs. Needs to get his head right. Needs to be a little bit more consistent he's, and diverse. And he also needs uh, to be helped out. He, he needs to have a, a deeper route tree. I mean, it felt like it was the nine route, and that was about it. But that, that can also yeah, get back I mean, to the offense and the scheme, obviously. Yeah, I mean, he's just he was their go guy. And that was about it. And so he made a couple, he made three or four really big plays throughout the season. And then there are entire games where he didn't show up. Uh, then I think you've got, of course, Joe Osai, who we've already touched upon. I, I do think that there are possibilities, just throwing it out there, for Jalen Green, for B.J. Foster, yeah. obviously, to have a big season and, and go pro. It's, that's within the realm of possibility. We, we're, we're not saying that's likely, and they'd probably be best served by returning. But, uh, yeah. I, what I about... What about Keontae Ingram? You know, that's possible. Uh, the issue with Keontae could be that he doesn't quite get the run because he's having to split his touches and his carries. Uh, the other aspect, I think, is durability for him. I think he needs to show for an extended period of time that he can handle the load and, and he's not going to get these nagging injuries that, that weigh him down. I think from a pure skill set, I think he's an NFL running back. Uh, but... As that NFL running back position has been reevaluated and commoditized, frankly, people understand correctly what you and I understood about the running back position <laughs> probably 15 years ago, and people have been a little slow coming to that understanding. The fact is, you can get a guy like Keontae Ingram, third, fourth round. Count. Yeah, you can get him undrafted free agent. But but I at, but I think because they've lost their value and there really is no carrot to tell them they can be a first round pick anymore. And you talk about tread on the tires. I think a lot of these yeah. guys, it may just be smart, even if he's going to be a fourth round pick to say, I'm leaving after my junior year. I'm going to get this thing started early because I'm dead to them at 28 or 29. Not only that, there is a possibility and this is what good programs have. And hopefully this is what Texas is building towards with guys like Rashawn Johnson, Dijon. with John Robinson. Yeah. He might want to go pro rather than lose his job. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what used to happen at the Miamis. That's what used to happen at those schools where he, you wanted to go pro and get drafted because the guy behind you might take your J. So, uh, I mean, you know, hopefully Texas can elevate to, to that sort of program. We're probably being fanciful and, and wish casting here. But, uh, you know, the other thing we probably need to address and I want to address is Texas got some help. And these, this is one of the people that's going to come in to help is a graduate transfer from Michigan, Tariq Black, a wide receiver, a Ballyhooed high school recruit, a high four star, considered the number 15 receiver in the country in 2017. Uh, he is going to come in as a graduate transfer after an injury riddled career at Michigan. And then also Texas signed a very late 2020 recruit at a key position. That's cornerback. His name is Jade Barron. He's, from, he's a local boy from Pflugerville Connolly. He broke a Baylor commitment to come to Texas. He is a four-star recruit, 
And uh, 24-7 has him ranked as the number 20 player in Texas. And if you value the cornerback position, if you value that skill set, if you want to see a guy who has legitimate speed, he's a, he's a 10, 9, 500 meters guy, uh, but he also can run backwards well. And he can break, he can make plays on the ball. He's, he's got some length. He's about 5'11", but he's got long arms. I think this is a great get for Texas, an important get. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about the impact of Tariq Black. So what are your thoughts on uh, Mr. Black? I love him. I, I, I follow the Michigan program pretty closely. I was fascinated with Harbaugh when he took that job. So uh, there, there was someone that I tried to watch every single Saturday and also keep up with. And when they got Donovan Peoples-Jones, who was the number one recruit in that class, who ended up going in the, I don't know, fifth or sixth, seventh round, uh, it when they got him in black, I was pretty excited about that. Black burst onto the scene when Michigan blew out Florida in one of those opening games. It was Black's first game in college. He had a couple catches, a long touchdown on a busted coverage. Bigger guy, 6'3", 215, 220. I like him. Uh, the problem is he played three games his freshman year, played three games his sophomore year, played 11 last year. It was about injuries, and I believe it was a couple ankle injuries, but where he was out for the year. I actually liked him the first couple years, and that would mean the first couple games, like six combined, more than I like Peoples-Jones. The biggest problem with Michigan, and it's why they had to bring in Josh Gaddis last year and also brought in Shea Patterson the year before, was the offense just was archaic, and Harbaugh was still trying to pound people. And yet still, it felt like Mac whenever you're trying to be something, but then also trying to trying to also – add other things in there and you're just getting mixed up with what your identity is and when to actually get outside of that and try and freshen it up and make yourself diverse so that Michigan had all sorts of problems Michigan fans know what I'm talking about their offensive line wasn't that good they were just it it did not help out the wide receivers to go with the help I think this is a great get obviously you got to start with he's got to stay healthy if he stays healthy, I think he starts for Texas and can really help them out, most likely on the outside with that size, and he's a good route runner. Yeah, you know, so I think, just to clarify, I think he's had ankle but also foot injuries. Yeah, ankle and, ankle and a foot, that's what it was. That's right, and the question is, is it a durability issue? Is it simply bad luck? And Texas obviously got a lot of mileage out of a graduate transfer from Cal and Trey Watson, but Trey Watson had actually had basically two entire football seasons and a lot of production under his belt before losing a season to a knee injury. The question was, could he come back, you know, and could he be productive? And of course he came, he came and he was very productive for Texas. Not a uh, flashy elite player, but a really tough guy and a guy who gave Texas a lot of good reps. Tariq Black may have a much better potential than Trey Watson. And he has the potential, frankly, to be the guy in the middle of the game that Yursic is going to feature and that Sam Ellinger is, is pretty good at, that he, you know, there is a carved out clear role for him in the LGH Humphrey uh, role. So you, and, and so, so you put him in that slot there and let him work the middle because he worked a lot of the outside. I was hoping that'd be the case. We talked about it a little bit on the triple option about what kind of can he be more versatile and, and put him there. And, and I guess... Uh, why not try it, right? Yeah, well, I, I think increasingly if you, in the RPO game, I think they're realizing at the college level that there's a lot of value in a big slot yeah. rather than a little shifty guy. Yep. And you've got to be able to be a big target over the middle of the field. You've got to be able to do something with the ball, maybe a little bit of space. And, of course, 
you know, when teams overplay you and when teams try to compensate, your running game is humming and you're spreading the ball around, people end up leaving their uh, nickelback exposed. And you can run those slot fades, you can run those slot nine routes, you can run those slot deep routes, which Clemson terrorized Alabama with. And you really see the value of a big physical slot guy. And we certainly all saw that with little Jordan Humphrey, who was one of the most productive Longhorn receivers in, in recent memory. So, yeah, that is the upside of Tariq Black. The truth is the downside of him is another injury-riddled year. Or all these injuries have depleted him or depleted his athleticism such that he's gone from this sort of elite recruit to just sort of a, a, a you know, a, a possession receiver or, or just a guy. And yeah, but- you know, he provides some depth. But even if that's the case, hell, even if he gets injured and didn't play, they were at, what, 82 or 83? I think they're okay there. You might as well give it a shot. Might as well give it a shot. Uh, very quickly on Jade Barron. Yeah, what do you like I about said, him? He was, I love him. I, I think he's a good guy with a lot of upside. I think people are watching his film, and it's very difficult to evaluate the cornerback position in high school football. Uh, but I, I think he has a lot of base attributes that translate well. And most importantly, what Texas desperately needs is depth at the cornerback position. Yeah. And Jade Barron looks like a guy who could stick at corner because what you see repeatedly is guys who come in touted as a corner, they can't quite pull it off at the college level or they don't get the coaching, which frankly has been an issue at Texas at multiple positions. And they just don't develop and you end up switching them to safety or, you know, it's really hard to find those true corners. And Texas is very fortunate to have Deshaun Jamison and Jalen Green uh, running, you know, of course, Anthony Cook is is a very, I think, reliable workman-like football player, and he's a good CB3. But beyond those guys, it is a wasteland. And once those guys matriculate, once those guys leave campus, it doesn't look great. And you really need someone like a Jade Barron to be the next guy. And, you know, as a sophomore, a redshirt sophomore, to be ready to come up and, and step up. And he moves well backwards. He's got some length. As I said, he's 5'11". He's not huge, but he, he has the ability to track the ball. He has basic cornerback instincts. He's a little light. I don't want to go into my rant that I always go into when people babble, like, oh, he's a little skinny. It's like, just like, if you can't figure it out by now, <laughs> the easiest thing in the world is to put weight and strength on an elite athlete. It's just not hard. And if you can put weight and strength on me and you with a real program, and we're uh, on the genetic bell curve pieces of garbage <laughs> next to a Division One wide receiver or a cornerback or any of those guys, yes. uh, then I, I don't know how to explain it to people anymore. And it's a shame that I have to read scouting reports, and I'm making quotes in the air from guys who get paid to do this for a living. Uh, not the guys at Inside Texas, mind you. No. But, uh, to read, you know, needs to add strength. That's a concern. It's like, just shut up, moron. Just like, don't even, like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You, well, you don't even know what you're writing. So, you know, there are, there are multiple guys coming out of high school. C.D. Lamb, for God's sake, who just went 17 to the Cowboys. He was about 165 pounds as a high school senior. So just, and now he's 198 pounds and he's plenty strong. So just relax. It's going to be fine. People can eat and lift weights and gain weight and strength. That's kind of how it works. So anyway, I like Jaday Barron. I like the upside. I think he's got – he really fills a hole for Texas, and uh, that was a great late get for the Horns. So it's good to see Tom Herman and those guys active on the trail. 
Um, what do we want to talk about? We kind of hit Texas. Do we want to talk a little last dance, or do we want to talk about MGM's proposal for quarantined bubble NBA playoffs? Actually, I wanted to get back to Barron, and the it's okay to write that. I saw people writing that. We even talked about that. But to focus on that and not think that it's assumed that's going to happen, that's not that, – that is a – anytime I see that where they got to put weight on, I love that. I mean, that, that, that's not a problem. It's almost a, an assumption. Yeah, and it, ultimately, I, I think it is – size is a consideration. If you're recruiting a guy and he's a – I'm talking about strength, though. Yeah, exactly. I mean – if the guy's got the frame and you know he's got the mental eval, he's got the work ethic, putting on strength is just not an issue. It's a non-issue. And, and if people don't understand that a guy with a 36-inch vertical leap, he is, he is a different genetic animal than you and me and, and the rest of the folks listening to this podcast, unless you are a former UT Longhorn football player listening to this podcast, in which case, welcome, and I'm not talking about you, but for the rest of us mortals, uh, yeah, you know, the truth is you can get real strong just as a regular person if you put your mind to it. And the fact is these genetically elite athletes start up, they are well ahead of us. So it doesn't really matter that they're 170 pounds as a high school senior. They can be 195 pounds in literally six months of lifting and eating. And it's good weight, and they'll actually get stronger and faster. Yeah, no, amen. Hey, you want to, uh, you want to give our boy Gabe a shout out here? I sure do. Hey, folks, now is a good time to uh, get your financial house in order. I know we've mentioned that before. And the best way to do that with a very simple decision and a very simple phone call is call Gabe at Mortgage Solutions, 832-5515. Mention this podcast. You're going to get $500 off your closing right away. If you bring them a competitive recent bid, that means within the last 24 to 48 hours, not some bid you got from six weeks ago. If you bring him a competitive recent bid, he's going to beat it by a grand. And there's a good chance it can beat it by more than that. Gabe is really good at what he does. The market has stabilized, still screamingly low historical rates. And if you are waiting to think they might get lower, uh, God help you. Because I think yeah. you're, you're uh, looking a gift horse in the mouth financially. So this is a great time if you're out in the, in the market for a new house. This is a great time to use Gabe. If you're going to refi and lower your payment, free up some cash, do, do some of those things to uh, rearrange your financial house and just pay less and get your financial house in order, this is a great time to pick up the phone, call Gabe, mention the podcast, 832-557-1095, and uh, he's going to square you away. He's a sharp guy. He's an ethical guy. And all the folks that have been working with him have sent me really happy, glowing emails about the service they got from Gabe, how quickly he closed, how competent he and his team were, and uh, the great rate and great deal they got. So uh, jump on it and uh, continue to support our sponsors. Now's the time. It's not going to cost you anything. Give it a shot. Paul, you still there? I'm still there. All right. We're just going to play this out and just give it some dead air, let it breathe a little bit. I want to give you the silent treatment. And <laughs> I'm trying to test your metal as a broadcasting professional. Oh, man, I do four hours a day. Trust me, I can play that game. I right. wanted to test your transition skills. All right. Well, let's go ahead and transition to uh, the last dance for the Chicago Bulls because, like Gabe, when you get a goat, it's only going to be around for so long, and you get a deal like that. And we're kind of getting we're getting a sense for Jordan 
and they're they're going back and forth. So they're going 98, which was the last dance. And then they're also, at this point, going from 92 to 93. So we see the Blazers series. You see more of Jordan's red ass and, as you, as you said, accumulating slights. Whether they're real or not, Clyde Drexler never did anything to Jordan, but it pissed him off. No, poor Clyde Drexler. No, no, it pissed him off that they were talking about it then, or that, that maybe that they were close. And everyone knew that was a joke if you actually go back to that time and if you remember it. But I also remember thinking at the time that this is more than just people right now in 1992 talking about this. This is goes back to the draft. Because remember the 84 draft, the thought was, well, the Blazers don't even need to look at Jordan because they already have a guy that plays that position. If you don't think Very Jordan true. was thinking about that and letting that light his fire too, you're nuts. Yeah, and you say everyone knew it, but everyone didn't know it because I, you and I knew it. And then, you know, we're, I, we're in high school and college at that age, I think. But uh, listen, there were plenty of sports writers saying that Clyde Drexler is every Bill Jordan, but he's more unselfish. He's less flashy. He's less marketed because he's in the small market in Portland and in the Pacific Northwest. He's ignored. And, you know, you only you go back and look at those incredibly charismatic U of H teams. And, and Drexler was a hell of a player. Great and, athlete. Uh, deservedly in the NBA Hall of Fame. But just people didn't – they couldn't get it. They couldn't accept it. And they didn't understand that Jordan was just a cut above the rest of the NBA. And so Jordan, of course, gets at, you know, gets wind of all this, this sort of undercurrent. Oh, you know, and actually the Blazers are a more talented team. And then Drexler is going to give Jordan all, you know, Jordan's never had a challenge like Clyde Drexler. And it's like, oh my God, like, what are you, what are you talking about? And so of course, Jordan, you know, terrorizes the poor Blazers in that series and does it any way he wants, including from the three point line, which Jordan, you know, really didn't shoot much from the three-point line, which uh, I think if you're a younger viewer watching this series, and I know a lot are, you need to understand that not many people shot from the three-point line back then. Even though it existed, you know, Larry Bird didn't take full advantage of the three-point line. Yeah. And, phenomenal. And, and Jordan Jordan but, was taking more threes as it went along, but not compared to today's. The volume was different, as you said, even for guys like Bird. Completely different volume. Even guys like Steve Kerr, even guys like John right. Paxson who were designed in a lab to, to shoot threes, right? In today's NBA, they wouldn't even shoot from inside the three-point arc, right? Unless it's a layup. And they were still shooting jump shots, mm-hmm. you know, from 18 feet. Yeah. You know, it was, it, was, this was, it was a combination of skill set, but also how the game was played, but also the full analytics movement just hadn't come in. Right. And they didn't understand the three and D dynamic. But at the same time, it was just part of the game. And, you know, guys like Larry Bird, who... I mean, today, today's game, he'd be shooting, what, 10, 12 threes a game? He'd be like, he'd be like James Harden. Yeah. Except making a lot more of them. <laughs> and, and frankly, you know, he, would, he had plenty of games where he scored 38 and he shot three three-pointers. Right. And, you know, that was the same. But, of course, Jordan, being Jordan, he goes out and he's, you know, sinking five or six three-pointers in the first half in an NBA playoffs game because they weren't covering him out there and they were scared of the drive. And... That was Jordan. You know, however he was going to beat you, he was going to beat you. And, you know, there'd be a game the next, the next day after he scores 44 and lights you up, he'd score 28 and have 11 assists and, you know, 13 rebounds. And 
that was just his game. Or he'd decide he wanted to become defensive guy for two quarters. And he would utterly dominate your best player and, and create all these turnovers and Scottie Pippen and he would just run up and down the court dunking. So it's, it's a lot of fun to watch that Jordan. In many ways, that 92 Bulls team was my favorite Bulls team. I don't know if they were the best Bulls team, but uh, they were just, that was an interesting confluence of Pippen and Jordan's athleticism meeting their skill and experience, right? Yeah. And they're sort of at their peak in many ways as players from just both a physical and experiential standpoint. And uh, Horace Grant, who... Can I jump in here? Yeah, jump in. Okay. Um, it, uh, on three things there. One, Jordan was getting better as a shooter from the perimeter and from three-point land. You could really feel that that year in the regular season. And as and to answer your question, I think it was the second-best Bulls team. I think the 96 team's the best one. 92 would be the second one. They ended up winning 67 regular season games. And, yeah, defensively they were crazy. Uh, but they, as BJ talked about, BJ Armstrong uh, during, I guess, ep- episode five or six, whichever one it was, he said Michael understood at that point that he could affect it in every single way. And so he would just whatever they needed, he would do. And I think LeBron has done a lot of that. And that, that, there's so there's more similarities between the guys than differences, even though stylistically their games are different. But where I can impact the game with whatever we need. And once Jordan realized that, as BJ said, you weren't going to beat him. Yeah, I mean, I think BJ Armstrong, who I think is the most underrated and most forgotten player of those great Chicago Bulls teams. Uh, if you go back and watch his game, he was a good shooter, good ball handler, very good player, no selfishness. And I think because he looked so young, he always looked like he was 14 years old. And because yeah. he had kind of a kind of a soft body, mm-hmm. uh, even though he was fit and in shape, he had a young he face. Kind of underestimated him. Yeah, he had a young face. That that was Jordan's. His two boys. That uh, their favorite player was B.J. Armstrong because he looked so young. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. He said Jordan didn't view the game at that point in terms of, oh, I need to score or I need to do this or I'm going to get my shots. He would just his goal was to win the game. And he said the rest of us were playing basketball and his job was to insert himself at the right time and win the game. Yeah. And however that needed to be accomplished. And that was Michael Jordan. That's what made him so special. It was also the height, I think, in many ways of Scottie Pippen because his confidence had grown. You look at, he would sublimate his game during the regular season, but in the playoffs, he would spike and you would see he'd be scoring more points. He'd be more active as the point forward running, you know, getting a lot of assists. He'd be a a more active rebounder. And one thing I love in this series that they show, Scottie Pippen, one of the most underrated in-game finishers and dunkers in NBA history. Yeah. Uh, no, he was a great one, and, and especially the one on Ewing. I always think about that. But then also defensively, what he would do. Yeah, Scott, no. Scotty was one of the top three to five players in the league by 92-93, and, and he would stay that way for a little while. I mean, he was that good because of all the different things he did. But when he was guarding Magic defensively, that was just in in the first first one. I remember them going to that game too, and he just ate him up. Now, Magic wasn't the same player. He was got gotten a little bit older, but he was still a good player. It's not like Larry, by by the time Larry got to 92 in the Dream Team, and we can talk about that, Larry Bird was probably, the, the, 12, shell. He was probably the 12th best player on that team. 
Yes, Leitner yeah. included. Yeah, I mean, he was a shell of himself. He could barely play because of back injuries. He could barely problems. walk. He could barely, yeah. I mean, he was there as a courtesy and as a respect to his historical greatness. You know, the, the peak of Larry Bird was frankly in the, mid, you know, the early to mid-80s. Yeah. That was, that's a fact. And the rest of it, the rest of the Larry Bird that you see was a depleted version. And, uh, you know, if you got to see Larry Bird, he was a, he, he was a very special player. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of also amazing to see the footage. You spoke of the Dream Team, that practice footage mm-hmm. that had long been discussed and rumored about how intense these scrimmages were. Now, we had seen that guys. before. So I hadn't seen that before. I oh, yeah. The, the, actually, That's five and six, awesome. five and six, I think I had seen about 97 to 98% of the video, which says a lot about me uh, being a loser with the Bulls and finding anything I could as this thing was going on. But, but yeah, we had seen a lot of that. And, and so, but it, it was cool to see. I mean, it's just, it's good to see just how competitive that thing was. And, and that seems to be a similarity with Michael's practices with the bulls that he brings that energy to practice. Yeah, I, I think that's, well, you're going to see some uh, Michael Jordan energy uh, next week when he starts, when they start recounting his punching. Oh, <laughs> of God. Her will Will, Will Purdue, Purdue uh, <laughs> various teammates, and you saw the competitiveness, right? You saw him gambling, uh, you know, flipping the coin against the wall, competing against the security guards. You saw him, you know, just life is a competition to Michael Jordan. Yeah, and uh, he's got a gambling problem. He, yeah, I mean, as they said in the documentary, is it a problem if if he's still worth a billion dollars? Right? Okay, well. You know, it, what Jordan said is, I have a competition problem. Yeah, and so we've gone back and forth on that, and you can have both. I would say that Keith Keith Richards, right, his body is a freak. I mean, he's a freak. His body is freakish, his organs are freakish, and he did tons of drugs that would kill most people. And he got through it, and he wasn't broke, and he's still living. Still had a drug problem. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. That's a good way to approach it. And uh, what we see in these later, the latter part of the documentary is the end of the love affair with Jordan, right? The media puts him on the pedestal. And then, of course, they start to chip away at him, which is how it always goes. It's what we do. Pardon? It's what we do here in this country. It's what we do. And Jordan, who, yeah, like hyper competitive, like like to gamble. Hey, none of that was illegal. None of what he was doing was was on tour. He's a grown man. And, and he was still performing. Built, nah, exactly right. And the media built up this image of Jordan and then immediately started working on, on tarnishing it and breaking it down. And some of it was realistic and, and legitimate reporting. Some of it was nonsense. And I think some of it was the criticism of his lack of social activism or what they perceived to be his lack of social activism. I thought it was unfair at the time. I still think it's unfair. Uh, Jordan, to his credit, allowed that in the documentary because he has final edit on this doc. In fact, I think he's going to allow several things that don't make him necessarily look great. But he also wanted to show the pressure of being Michael Jordan. And I know people will say, oh, LeBron James has pressure. I mean, no. Uh, Michael Jordan existed at a level of fame, celebrity, that's not ever been paralleled in the history of sports, except for maybe Muhammad Ali. Right. No one in our lifetime as an athlete that we can remember. That's right. 
and the intense pressure of being Michael Jordan, not being able to go do anything without a huge crowd forming and just an inability to go relax and an ability to, to go unwind. And that is then coupled with these criticisms that because he stood for sort of universalist values, and that's the one thing that I think is ignored about, about Jordan. And he says it in the documentary. I was a professional basketball player. I was 25, 27. I was dedicated to my craft. But what I stood for was dedication, work ethic, colorblindness. You know, Jordan had a very different view of how people can come together. Mm-hmm. He had a universalist view of humanity, right? It wasn't about tribes. It wasn't about, um, it wasn't about identity. It was about, hey, we're all in this together. And I think a lot of that came from his experience in athletics, which was a great leveler and where he grew and learned to know people very different from him. And he grew to love and respect them. And, you know, race didn't enter into it, any of that sort of thing. Now, some of that, he was obviously immune because of who he was and how he grew up, but he wasn't always Michael Jordan. And he wasn't always Michael Jordan, the famous Michael Jordan. He was, before that, he was Michael Jordan, the kid from Wilmington who got cut from his varsity as a sophomore. He was Mike Jordan. And he was Mike Jordan. And that's how he kind of he felt at that time. And I think he received a lot of criticism for not being more of an activist. And I've always thought that was unfair because what they really mean is that you didn't say exactly the things we want you to say. Right. It's not that you didn't express yourself in the way you wanted. It's that you didn't, you didn't stick to the script that we think you should be saying. And that's, a, that's an element of the media. It's an element of academia. And they view him as a sellout because of that, and I think that's completely unfair. Well, it's also, and look, we see this on both sides. If there's a celebrity, so a celebrity who's on the right or a celebrity who's on the left, obviously there's more on the left, but you'll see the other side say, hey, shut up, man, stick, stick to acting, stick to whatever. Well, you're only saying that because they're not on your side, which is, Correct. Pretty effing childish. When Jordan, at a certain level, very obviously, was a conservative. And I mean, small c, conservative, right? He's a a conservative guy who believes in very old school values. You're having trouble? Work harder. You're not getting what you want? Work harder. You're not doing, have have you competed as hard as you can? Have you... Have you made this your passion? Would you rather live or die than have success, right? And, and these are things that are small C conservative. They're, they're old-fashioned country boy North Carolina. And, you know, that is at odds with, a, 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 I'd say, a more somewhat radical or social justice mindset. And so even though they're probably politically not necessarily a huge chasm between them, how you go about accomplishing things is different. And what Jordan saw, and I, I would contend, is that I think that there are less people who grew up to be a racist because Michael Jordan existed. It's very difficult to be a kid who worships Michael Jordan. And be a racist. Everything about him, his yeah. charisma, he's handsome, he's, he's you know, a hard worker, all these, he's incredible at what he does. He's the he's alpha winner. Right? He's a winner. It's so hard to have that be your guy and then also be a racist, right? It, <laughs> yeah. Now, people can accomplish that, right? But it's hard increasingly as, as you, the Michael Jordans of the world exist to, to see a guy who is everything in the embodiment of universalist values that you love. It's hard to then grow up 
and, and have a disparagement of an entire class of people. And I think that was part of Jordan's appeal. And the other thing, Kevin, you know, and they always try to bring up Ali. We can get into this sometime in a podcast more in depth, but Muhammad Ali is an extremely charismatic, admirable guy in a lot of ways. But people gloss him over and use him and his, his stances in shorthand without getting into the particulars. And that's for a reason. Because the fact is, Muhammad Ali was a member of the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. And the Nation of Islam was not, a, not, was not uh, orthodox Muslim belief. They were a race cult read, led by a madman. And the fact that he stood against the Vietnam War, which is a legitimate opposition. I don't have a problem with that. No, lots uh, of people did. Lots of people did. But the why of why you stand against something is as important as the what. And the why of why he stood against it is because he was ordered to do so right. by Elijah Muhammad. Yep. Full stop. Period. And people want to gloss that over. And did Muhammad Ali have incredible uh, attributes that are so deeply charismatic? Yes. His heart in the ring. His, his basic demeanor belied some of the things that this race cult that he was a part of were saying, right? Which if you want to Google NOI beliefs, particularly at that time period, you're going to come across some crazy stuff. I'll leave it to y'all to do that research. But um, the fact is, Ali, to put him as the shorthand of the principled athlete by just sort of throwing it out there and then trying to make Jordan the contrast of the ungrateful guy who's, who you know is standing on the shoulders of giants and just taking the money and, and selling his Nikes, I don't think it's fair. And I don't think it's fair at all. And, you know, the truth is, I don't think people understand the true complexity and and sophistication of the times that Ali lived in and what Ali actually believed and his evolution, which was significant. So the Ali that we all know and love and the, the, the guy that we all revered, the guy lighting the flame at the Olympics in Atlanta, and we all had tears in our eyes. That was a very different Muhammad Ali and from some of the associations he had in the late 1960s. Yeah, and you also got to get back to, so let's fast forward to when Jordan was playing and doing all this. And for all the people that want to criticize him, that that's fine. I mean, you can criticize him say, hey, he wasn't an activist. Well, yeah, he admits he wasn't an activist. But also, things people didn't show their political colors, and you didn't talk about it as much back then. And there's probably some good things and bad things to that. But it's not like it was today. And as a lot of these NBA players have found out, you can take the you can take one stance at home and kind of fire up your base and the people that may like like you because this has turned into such a binary issue and problem in America where everyone's just divided by lines and and you've got people that are really kind of planting the flag. But as they found out that when you get into some global stuff. You can look like a real hypocrite, which is what those guys look like, and you kind of question what their true motives are back at home when they're talking about stuff when they can't even stand up to a dictator or a communist party in, in China because it affects their wallet. Yeah, well, and you realize that Disney you know, and some of these major entertainment networks have massive stakes in China, not to mention the NBA as a product. Yes. All the camps, you know, this is not stuff that's been reported and, and really understood, but one of the key off-season aspects of all these guys like LeBron, all these guys with a big name and, and, and shoes and, and entire media platforms, one of the first things they do in the off-season is head to China. Mm-hmm. And they do personal appearances. 
They do commercials. They do camps. These things are all on the down low. And they get and paid a ton for not much. They get paid a ton for not much. And as always, when you have 1.3 billion people who are rising up from massive poverty and have significant little economic outposts like Shanghai, which are, are rich, relatively speaking, at least relative to Chinese history, you have an incredible uh, market. And that's always been the case. That's always been the appeal of the Chinese market. And when you have these guys criticizing and, and talking about social justice, sometimes intelligently, sometimes pretty stupidly, yeah, uh, and they aren't able to call, get called on their own bullshit when Daryl Morey says, hey, I stand with Hong Kong. I stand with the free people of Hong Kong trying to live free lives and speak their minds against a dictatorial communist regime. For them to come and slam back on him, for the NBA to attack him and silence him, tells you a lot. And so be careful with those activism arguments mm -hmm. when people start to realize that maybe your activist arguments not only are just to play at home to a certain tone to the media or, or to certain people, but also it's really a marketing stance. It's really a corporate stance. And you're using this as a means of growing your brand and creating some sort of internationalist symbol like an Ali or something like that that you're hoping to be. But then you're pretty damn quiet when it comes to real, deep, incredible oppression. People getting murdered, people getting pulled out of their homes in the middle of the night, sent to the gulag. You can't say a word about that. And uh, yeah, I got a little bit of problem with that. So in some ways, Jordan's approach might be a little refreshing. And uh, I don't know, you know, maybe that puts us on the odd odds with the, the cool kids right now. But you know, I, I think there are appeals and values to the universalist approach, to the Jackie Robinson, to the Jesse Owens, who said, look, you need to treat me as a man. Jim Crow, disgraceful. How we're being treated in this country, disgraceful. I'm a man just like you, and you need to afford me respect. But I also fundamentally at some level believe in this country, and we're all in this together. And what they did more often than not is said, look, you're going to learn about me and admire me and accept me because of who I am and how I act and how I go about my business. And it's not necessarily about a singular identity, you know, identitarian message or the, the, you know, the, the SGW sort of uh, moment, you know, cause of the moment. What their argument was, hey, we're fighting a bigger fight for you to understand that I'm a man just like you and you're going to afford me respect. And that's, that's why they're never brought up, but it's always Ali and the contrast to Ali. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, we could probably do a whole podcast on that. All right, we got to wrap this up. We do want to give a big shout out to David McClellan. Lots of people are worried right now, obviously, with the recent events, maybe derailing your retirement plans. Paul and I have talked about that. Lots of people just in different spots right now. So it certainly made all of us reassess kind of where we're at and where we want to go. And that's why we're very proud to offer our listeners a chance to work with David McClellan a fiduciary financial advisor from Form Financial. Right now, he's offering free consultations for our listeners. So this is a great time for free to kind of see where you stand. So all you got to do is mention the podcast. It's going to be well worth your time to explore it. And David can really help you out. He's not your typical financial advisor. One example of that, he's also head of wealth management solutions at Ivante, where he helped build technology that uses artificial intelligence to predict your medical and long-term 
care expenses in retirement. So it really takes a different look at it. We talked about analytics earlier. This is a perfect example of, of how things have changed in 10 to 15, 20 years. And David's been a big part of that. So they look at your long-term care expenses in retirement, also personalized to your health, location, income, and insurance coverage. He recently published a groundbreaking paper on Medicare means testing, which could wreck your retirement plan. So definitely would advise you to check that out as well, or just give them a call. We'll give you that number here in a second. If you do have a large tax-deferred savings like 401ks and IRAs, if so, you definitely need to talk to David about your exposure to Medicare means testing, because if you've saved a lot in tax-deferred accounts, your required minimum distributions in retirement could cost you tens or even one hundreds of thousands in additional Medicare premiums in retirement. I know it's not fun for a lot of people, but it's important. So give David McClellan a call. 312-933-8823. 312-933-8823. Or you can email him. It's dmcclellan at forumfin.com. dmcclellan at forumfin.com. We are really happy to be working with him. And good timing, especially with that free consultation and everything that's going on. Absolutely. Pick up the phone. It, it, this is a financial physical and it's free. So give him a call. See if he can help you. The, the answer to that is yes, he can. And see if there's a good fit there, because I think this is a guy that we believe in. And as I've said before, we can't make any claims because of financial regulation, things yep. like that. But there is a reason we are affiliating with David McClellan. We're proud to be uh, having him sponsor us. And uh, we're really excited to have him on board. Give him a call. It's going to be worth your time. And it's completely free. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, Kevin, the 1-0 podcast, our sister podcast, underneath the Everyone Gets a Trophy banner. You guys uh, need to go give it a listen. Their last podcast is really good. They break down the draft. They talk about the Texans and the Cowboys. They get into some Longhorn stuff. They even talk about Shaka Smart and Greg Brown mm -hmm. and really give you a great perspective. Kevin and I haven't talked about that much, probably to our detriment. But I tell you what. Brad and Joe knock it out of the park, discussing the implications of Greg Brown, uh, the best uh, Longhorn lineup that should go and complement him with uh, him and Matt Coleman as the core of the next year's team. Give it a listen. These guys are really good at what they do. I've been so impressed and so proud to have these guys partnering with us, and uh, it's definitely worth your time. So make sure that you go subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It means a lot to us. It brings a lot of new eyes to us. And that's really the only way we can move up those charts and attract new eyes and fans. So uh, thanks for your support. Make sure you do that. Kevin, do you have anything else? That's it. I guess we, uh, we'll talk to you all next week. We'll, we'll get back in. We'll find something to talk about. Trust me. Oh, yeah. No lack of things to talk <laughs> about. And, uh, hey, the last, last dance has been uh, water in the desert for us. Yeah. And uh, we hope folks have been able to relive some great old memories. And if you're a little bit younger, I hope it gives you some understanding of, of why guys like us are still so obsessed with Michael Jordan and his singularity and the bizarre force of nature <laughs> this human being was. Uh, yeah, I think that the documentary is giving you a good flavor for that. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing you guys next week. You guys stay safe out there and uh, make sure you support our sponsors.